Trump could have issued all sorts of orders that would have made this an unambiguous coup. And he just didn't do these things because as he has been for as long as he's been a political figure, he's been characterized by this lethargy, this inaction, this aversion to exertion and personal risk. And in fact, that's what happened, luckily for the United States, because that's probably what kept the attempted coup from being a possibly successful one. And now The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. The one thing you are always asked when you write a big nonfiction book about a big problem is, what can we do? And that question mostly seems to be about politics. It mostly seems to imply, what can Congress do? What kind of laws and reforms can we pass? And I've noticed that in trying to answer that question, many nonfiction books suffer from what I call the chapter 10 problem. They have described a deep problem in nine chapters. Hopefully, if it's a good book, they've actually brought a lot of knowledge and analysis and insight to characterizing the nature of that problem. And then in chapter 10, they try somehow to offer up solutions, and they tend to fall into one of two categories. Either they are saying, to deal with these deep fundamental problems, we have to have completely radical reform, change everything. And reading this, you always have a sinking feeling that nobody is going to put place these radical reforms in any case. And even if they did, they might have all kinds of other drawbacks, which make them not worth pursuing. Or you say, hey, here are the three little things we can do to fix the problem. And reading those, you might think, yeah, we might be able to get a few of those done. But even if we do, it clearly isn't going to address the depth of the problem. So my way around the chapter 10 problem in The Great Experiment is, first of all, to emphasize the positive changes that are happening in the heart of society. The fact that we have, in fact, made real progress over the last decades, as I've been emphasizing in the last few weeks, and that we can continue to live up to our ideals more fully by pushing those social and cultural transformations along. That takes a little bit of pressure off of my solutions in order for us to be able to have an optimistic vision of the future of diverse societies. Having said that, I do also have some suggestions which aren't going to change the trajectory of our society, but which can help make a better future more likely, which can help put the kinds of background conditions into place which make it easier for us to sustain our ethnically and religiously diverse societies. They are secure prosperity. I reject the idea that we should cease having economic growth. I think it is only when people feel like they're making real progress in life and their kids are going to do better than them and there's reasons to be excited about the future that they're also likely to welcome a new neighbor who comes from a different country with open arms. If you have economic stagnation, it's much more likely that they will feel jealous or that they will blame that neighbor. It is universal solidarity, a robust welfare state, which ensures that not just the quote-unquote winners of society have a decent life, but that every citizen feels respected and feels that they can have the basic necessities. But also, importantly, a welfare state which avoids slicing and dicing the population based on their demographic characteristics. A welfare state in which we are treating people the same on the basis of their belonging in our society rather than directing certain kinds of special benefits to people on the basis of their race or their religion. It is effective and inclusive institutions which actually make citizens feel that politicians are listening to them, that they can have an influence on the rules that bind us collectively. And finally, it is mutual respect. It is a public sphere in which people feel able to express their deeply held convictions, knowing that they're going to be treated with some amount of respect and consideration by their fellow citizens. There's more concrete sets of policies under each of those headings in the book, but I think if we manage to create a society that has those characteristics, we would not solve the chapter 10 problem, but go some part of a way towards creating the background conditions which allow our diverse societies to flourish.
My guest today is Graham Wood. Graham is one of the writers in the country I most admire. He is a staff writer for The Atlantic. He has a book called The Way of the Strangers, Encounters with the Islamic State. And we had a really broad conversation which reflects his incredibly broad interests. We start by trying to make sense of the latest revelations around January 6th and what Graham calls the dumbest coup in history. But we also talk about his profile of MBS and the recent changes in Saudi Arabia. We also talk about his deep reporting on ISIS and why it is important to take the ideology of extremists seriously. We even talk about being middle school lab partners with Richard Spencer and the role that general interest journalists like Raymond has, why it is so important for journalists to be able to pursue a broad set of interests rather than to be constrained by their own identity. Graham Wood, welcome to the podcast. Yasha, it's good to be here. I've been a big fan of your writing and your work for a long time. In fact, when I briefly taught a nonfiction writing workshop, I assigned your amazing piece on ISIS. And we've been wanting to have you on the podcast for a long time, but we finally made it happen last minute to try and think together about the January 6th committee. And I think my main question, which I think many listeners will have is, you know, with these new revelations and trying to put into the big picture, what do we actually know about what happened on January 6th, 2020, and why or whether it matters? I think the main thing that we know is that many of the defenses of what happened on January 6th from the MAGA side are nonsense, which we kind of knew before, but it's sort of been read into the record that the idea that this was a totally spontaneous protest that sort of got out of hand, that it was a bunch of tourists who walked into the Capitol, not certain that it was actually even illegal to do so, that that's not the case, that it was actually a somewhat planned and also somewhat organic thing that was violent and that included the cooperation of people in the Trump orbit. And then we find out a few days ago from the testimony of Cassidy Hutchinson that Trump himself was fully aware, apparently, according to what she heard on that day, that the crowd was armed, that it wanted to go find and kill the vice president, and that Trump said, apparently, that Mike Pence deserves it, and even ordered that metal detectors be removed from the places where they might have prevented some of the armed members of the crowd from going forward. So, you know, a, a lot of these things, at least to my mind, were things that I sort of knew. I mean, it, it wasn't shocking to me at all to find that Trump would be doing these things or that he would have these thoughts or that his amorality would get the better of him as it has seemingly every day of his entire life. But again, that's now been kind of read into the record and the idea that the defenses that have been put forward of what was happening no longer make any sense if they ever did to a fair-minded observer. So I have to say that I had come to assume that my capacity to be shocked by Donald Trump had been expleted, and not just yesterday or last year, but about five or six years ago. I think we've known for a very long time who Donald Trump is and who he's capable of. And in that sense, I wasn't that excited about the January 6th hearings because I thought we've known this guy's number for so long. I don't see what significantly new about his character at least could emerge. I have to say that the fact that he actually considered and at least allegedly tried physically to join the mob on January 6th, that to me was shocking because that does take this from the classic repository of authoritarian populist action, which is the use of political means to delegitimize institutions and make it hard or impossible to be removed from office by democratic means, to actually the realm of a kind of classic Caudillo coup where, you know, you put yourself at the head of a mob of people and storm the institution. You call it the dumbest coup in history. What makes it a coup and what makes it dumb? And perhaps what would it have taken for the coup to succeed? Yeah, so when I call it the dumbest or most pathetic coup in history, what I'm referring to is the very fact that Trump, although he has this moment in Hutchinson's testimony where he lunges for the steering wheel of his SUV so that he can be taken to the Capitol and then it is thwarted by his Secret Service detail and say that they're not capable of doing this. You're right, that's very out of character for him and it would have really changed the, the dynamic of the situation. 
what he in fact did was went back to the White House and sat around for hours. So the very content of these hearings is pretty strange, I think, from the perspective of anyone who looks at coups elsewhere in the world, where, as you say, that there's a there's several models of a classic kind of caudillo coup, where there is a physical attempt to thwart the legitimate handover of power or the legitimate governance of the country. And that happened. That's what makes it a coup. What is strange about this is that the actual orders and action by Trump that would have really caused this to be a coup in a more familiar sense didn't happen. I mean, he was sitting back and observing it as if to say, it would be nice if someone did all the risky things that go into making a coup, but I'm not going to do it myself. It would be as if one sort of template for this would be the Bierhal Putsch of Hitler. And what if Hitler, instead of going to the Bürgerbräukeller himself, firing a shot into the ceiling and saying the government is dissolved, instead just stayed back and waited for someone to tell him that someone else did it for him? That would be a strange turn of events. And that seems to be what has happened here, where Trump could have issued all sorts of orders that would have made this an unambiguous coup and made the January 6th committee proceedings kind of irrelevant because they would have established very clearly what had happened and also made it more likely that the coup would have succeeded. And he just didn't do these things because as he has been for you know as long as he's been a political figure, he's been characterized by this lethargy, this inaction, this aversion to exertion and to personal risk. And in fact, that's what happened, luckily for the United States, because that's probably what kept the attempted coup from being a possibly successful one. Certainly would have increased the violence and increased the uncertainty in in subsequent days. But coups do not generally happen by the person who can make those orders, make those commands, just sitting back and instead letting a bunch of proud boys with some tourists mixed in just do it on their own. He could have said, look, I'm in charge here military, listen to me, not Joe Biden indefinitely. He could have said, Mike Pence is under house arrest. We need to keep him for his own safety, sequestered in his residence. All of these things are things that happen typically in coup attempts. And they didn't happen because they would be overt, flagrant acts of an attempt to subvert the legitimate process. So in retrospect, at the time, it was pretty horrifying and scary. It remains horrifying, but it also is just weird, almost humorous, that the main thing that could have caused this coup to move into the territory of possible success is that the guy whose participation was absolutely necessary was doing nothing, was watching TV the whole time. That is weird. Your comments sort of open the obvious question about the hypothetical, which is, if he had gone to the Capitol on January 6th, he had placed my pants under house arrest, if all of those things would have happened, would the coup have succeeded? I know that you know predicting the possible success of coups is an incredibly difficult undertaking, and coup plotters often get that wrong. I think historians often get it wrong, because if it succeeds, they think, oh, it was due to succeed. And if it doesn't succeed, they think, well, it was always going to fail. But often it probably depends on split-second decisions that people make. And when you think of the anti-democratic coup in Spain in the early 1980s, which Javier Cercas, who's been in my podcast in the past, has written about beautifully in The Anatomy of a Moment. And he brings out really beautifully in that book how you know the king's decisions actually saved democracy. And he may very well have decided otherwise. It was kind of a question of happenstance in part. So do you have any kind of evaluation of what would have gone down if Trump had gone to the Capitol that day if he had placed Pence under house arrest. At the very least, we would have had a terrifying situation. I mean, as it was, it was deeply unsettling. But what seemed to have been wrapped up by roughly midnight of the day of January 6th, if Trump had taken some of these actions, would not have seemed so. There was a period when, had he done these things, again, things that typically actually make coups succeed, that is, taking unilateral control of executive power and stating clearly, I'm not going to let go of it, except if you use greater amount of force than I have. These things would, at the very least, have made the transition of power not a sure thing over the days and weeks ahead, and would have probably ensured a lot more violence. Again, what I think has characterized Trump through the years 
is a almost extreme desire to avoid personal risk and instead to, in a way, beg to be invited to do things by others who have done the risky and criminal acts for him. So he seems to have always wanted to be a Cincinnatus-like figure who has been called in to save things by others. And by the way, doesn't care what those others have to do to do that. But if there is something that has to be done that is illegitimate, better that they do it than that he do it. And with coups, there are many examples of coups that have failed, some that have succeeded, where the leader who is put into power has sort of hung back physically. He's been, you know, in Paris or whatever, while the actual mechanism of the coup is is happening. But the kind of inaction, failure to even behind the scenes, order flagrantly the seizing of power by Trump is anomalous. And without that, I don't think there was any chance that this would have succeeded. With it, it would have been at the very least a big mess for days to come. I'm trying to think about what a skeptic would say here, right? And they would say, well, perhaps if this is such a strange coup attempt because he was so inactive, it's that he wasn't really planning or plotting a coup. It's that, you know, with his rhetorical endorsement of sorts, a really chaotic coup attempt started to take place, organized in part by some extremist groups, owed to Hoppenstance to some extent. And then as he saw it happening, he thought, oh, I guess I better put myself in front of it. He just suddenly saw it happening and thought, well, I guess I should join it. But in the end, I don't have a couch to do so. Yeah, I think this is very much in character. Now, maybe the most pointed way to phrase that objection is, if it's such a strange coup, maybe it's just not a coup. Maybe it's not something that he's doing. Maybe he's actually innocent. And I can see how this might phrase itself to Trump himself as it's happening. There are things that you can do that are overt crimes. And he may very well have committed some of those, for example, pressuring state and federal officials to concoct facts about the election. Now, the things that he actually does on the day, though, they look more like omissions and deeply immoral omissions. But people do not generally get put into prison for failing to put up metal detectors. These are things that one could very reasonably argue he had a duty to do, knowing that there were people who were armed who were intending to subvert the government. But mostly he's sitting back. Now, I'm not a legal scholar, so I can't say whether these omissions amount to crimes or amount to sedition. But he's very much letting other people do the things that are clearly criminal, such as stopping Congress from performing its duties. And that is totally unsurprising. It's something that I think it's important for the House committee to establish. But this pattern is is also totally unsurprising to anybody who's been watching Trump and Trump world. Let's switch to talking about some of the other great work you've done. You had a big article about Saudi Arabia under MBS recently, which taught me a lot about the country and the changes it's undergoing. Perhaps take us back for a moment, which is now perhaps difficult to remember, to why a lot of people had high hopes in MBS. Why, when MBS effectively took over power in Saudi Arabia a good number of years ago now, there was a surprising amount of openness by people from various parts of political spectrum, but perhaps he might be the person to actually push Saudi Arabia forward in a positive way. It's helpful to go back in the post-September 11 era, when the conventional wisdom was that it was mostly Saudis who actually committed these terror attacks. And that the reason it was mostly Saudis, because it was, it was a tremendously screwed up place that was sometimes overtly, sometimes covertly supportive of global jihadist activity. And that within its borders was among the most backward and savage societies left on earth, where women were second-class citizens who put it in the, the most gentle way. And where, you know, there are public executions and so forth. So if you imagine back in 2003, making a list of all the things that you'd want to see Saudi Arabia change, you might say curtailing jihadist exports. You might say equality of the sexes, women driving and so forth. You might get a list of a dozen things. So when MBS came to power, almost none of those things had actually happened in a visible and vigorous way. The change had not happened. And anybody who was cynical about Saudi Arabia had 15-odd more years for that cynicism to be entrenched. That includes many, many Saudis who thought Saudi should change. 
And so MBS shows up. He's in his 30s. He has what amounts to near absolute power. And what does he do? He announces that almost all of these things will change, that suddenly Saudi Arabia will no longer be supportive of jihadism. Suddenly, Saudi Arabia will be more open to the outside world coming in. Its citizens will be freer to partake in entertainment that is common elsewhere on the planet. Women will be, if not equal citizens, much more equal than they were before. So that's why people were so excited about MBS. Now, MBS never said, however, that there was going to be political reform in the kingdom. In fact, almost the opposite, saying that this place is going to be as authoritarian as it ever was. But most of that list of a dozen or so things that in 2003 would have been so exciting are going to be changing. They're going to be changing fast. Anybody who opposes them is going to be having to answer to me, sometimes in a very coercive way. So you can see why, especially before MBS's reputation for cutting people up into little bits in his consulates, until that became entrenched, there was a period when people thought, maybe this guy is actually the salvation for Saudi Arabia. And part of this, I suppose, is just a lack of other avenues of hope, right? Nobody thought that Saudi Arabia was about to democratize. There wasn't any other potential leader who one might hope would take over the country. And so when an authoritarian leader comes in and makes override noises about some of the reforms that seem important to the West and also are morally substantively important, like bigger rights for the women in the kingdom, I can see how people sort of squint and project their hopes onto the one realistic avenue for delivering them. Obviously, since then, we've seen that many of those hopes seem to have been unrealistic. What has MBS's rule actually looked like in terms of his quite brutal consolidation of power, the imprisonment of many of his own family members for years in these luxury hotels, in terms of obviously the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, but also the area that perhaps I'm less up on, which is, has he delivered to some extent on those various promises about no longer supporting terrorism and improving rights for women, or has he failed on those counts as well? Oh yeah, he's been very successful in some of these reforms. Some of the social reforms were done just at the stroke of a pen. So women driving, for example, opening cinemas, having normal forms of entertainment, wrestling, golf, that kind of thing. That's just happened. And probably irreversibly, extremely popular reforms. And then there are other things like economic reform, which it would be hard to do any worse than Saudi Arabia had done before, where it was truly a one industry country in the oil. But Saudi Arabia has opened up significantly since then has delivered on the full promise of the Vision 2030 plan that MBS unveiled? Probably not. But as you say, the way that he did these things was by taking the entire Ancien Regime and then saying, those of you who are uh, skeptical of this and who have expressed that skepticism, even in the most gentle ways, especially if it's in public, you're going to find that you regret that. And the main way that happened was by imprisoning everybody in... This luxury hotel, the Ritz-Carlton in Riyadh, which I've stayed in, very nice hotel, but it turned into a prison. And for a period of months early in MBS's reign, he pretty much just got everybody in prison in the Ritz and said to them, look, this was a very corrupt country in the past. The corruption will stop now. Anybody who's there can settle their way out by paying some large percentage of their ill-gotten gains. And then, by the way, this will tell you that there is nobody who is safe from me. We're talking princes. We're talking Al-Walid bin Talal, the richest man in Saudi Arabia. There's so many people who were rolled up in this. And to ordinary Saudis, a lot of them were thrilled by this because it showed that anti-corruption was going to reach the highest levels. It also showed everybody who wondered whether MBS would robustly oppress anybody who got in his way, that yes, he would. So it was a very, very strong signal. In other words, all of this is real, including the more or less open promise to rule in a brutal authoritarian way, with an end that was largely popular, especially to secular Saudis, and in some ways welcomed by secular liberal outsiders, including Americans. One of the really fascinating things about anti-corruption drives is that they so often serve as a stalking horse for both populist candidates to win power in countries that are deeply corrupt, and they rightly say, our country is terribly corrupt, send home over political class, but then actually just expand their power. 
or often by dictators. That's happened with Xi Jinping at the beginning of his reign. Again, a very visible anti-corruption drive, which is quite popular in the country in some ways, which ultimately served to allow him to become the sole leader. Is there any way out of this trap? What should countries do that really do have a lot of corruption to fight with corruption without empowering the person at the helm of the anti-corruption drive? And in the context of Saudi Arabia, was there actually a positive effect on corruption? Was corruption in fact driven down or did sort of the people exacting the bribes simply change? So my view is that corruption almost certainly is down. Corruption was in a way, the form of government before. There was this patronage society where if you were a Saudi, in some ways, you were the kind of serf of some prince somewhere. Power flowed in this pyramidal structure all the way to the top. What MBS promised, which is very similar, as you say, to other authoritarians, Putin comes to mind too, in the way that many Russians, if you ask them about what's so great about Putin, they'll say it's not because he's a nice guy, it's because he's not a nice guy, but he eliminated the uncertainties of the 1990s and consolidated corruption under one corrupt person, namely himself. A lot of Saudis might think the same thing about MBS. There used to be so many princes who you'd have to beg, whose good graces you'd have to be in to open a business, to get ahead, have a dignified life. Now there's just one, and that's a huge improvement. It's getting closer to the correct number of zero every day. So I think that your question of what alternatives are there to this, it's certainly answered by MBS's people by saying, no, there aren't. It's really, really difficult to end corruption and the kind of chaos that reigned in previous years unless you have one brute who stops it all at once. Now, this is not to you and me, I think, a satisfactory answer because other countries have a lack of corruption without this consolidation of legitimate force in a untrustworthy, unelected, so forth, despot. So why not? Now, MBS, again, like many authoritarians, including Putin before him, has said, it's got to be me. And he's made sure that it has to be him by ensuring that any other kind of opposition, any other kind of institutionalization of power to whom this important task might have been trusted could never exist, that it's been destroyed before it became an alternative to him. And if any other attempt to do that does arise, he'll strangle those in the crib as well. So anybody who expresses any kind of desire for democracy or any kind of activists, even if they are pushing reforms that MBS ultimately wants to implement himself, they are very quickly rounded up, put into prisons, and forced into exile. Their families are treated poorly. And then that fairly successfully makes it impossible to create a movement within the kingdom for any kind of change. So Joe Biden came into office promising a more moral foreign policy, a foreign policy which didn't make corrupt deals with people like MBS, a foreign policy which was less cynical and short-termist than that of Donald Trump. Because of rising gas prices and the threat that poses to Democrats of the midterm elections and perhaps to Biden's prospects in 2024, his administration has now gone tail in hand to back Venezuela to increase the output of oil. And now there's an impending meeting between Joe Biden and MBS. You know, politics and history is full of cruel ironies. How do you assess that those actions by the administration? And what should we think about Biden's desperate attempt for rapprochement with Saudi Arabia? So I spoke with MBS. I interviewed him after two years of his not talking to journalists. And one of the things that he definitely wanted the world to know, wanted Biden to know personally, was he said, look, Biden has to look after his own country's interests. And if he thinks that means pissing off Saudi Arabia, then so be it. Give it a try. I don't care what he thinks, but that's the fact. So I think Biden correctly read that as a taunt. He correctly read that as disrespect. And all of the visceral reaction that we've seen in Biden's mentions of Saudi Arabia in the past, saying that MBS personally should be treated as a pariah, that Saudi Arabia is is a malign influence and he doesn't want to give it an inch. All of those things are still there in the views of the president. But as you say, there are certain objective realities to politics right now. And that includes the fact that oil is really expensive and Saudi Arabia has this nearly unique ability to just pump more of it because they decide that they want to. And so Biden going to Saudi Arabia 
is, I think, the only responsible thing for a president to do. He should be going there. He should be talking to MBS and he should get more oil pumped and he should be demanding plenty of other reforms too. That said, it's not going to be easy for there to be any kind of agreement that struck because MBS is the regime. He is the state there. And if he feels disrespected and he is disrespected, then that's going to be a a huge impediment to any deals being struck. So I'm not confident that this is going to go all that well. In the past, there have been attempts to get MBS to meet with Biden. And MBS has not been agreeable to that because if the meeting just takes the form of Biden saying, you killed Jamal Khashoggi, we hate you for that, and then exiting the meeting to give a press conference about how he looked MBS in the eye and moralized to him, MBS is not interested in that. What the Saudis are trying to get is something more like the relationship they had with the Trump administration, which is a relationship between two amoral equals, a relationship of spouses rather than mistresses, as one Saudi government official put it. I just don't see them getting anything like that with a president who, who just frankly hates their guts. And then also with a country, the United States, whose values are just so different. Its interests are sometimes aligned, its values almost never. So that's going to be really tough. A relationship of amoral equals is a lovely turn of phrase. It makes me think of Socrates' argument in the Republic that such a thing is not possible, but I think we've had plenty of evidence for the last 4,000 or so years that, in fact, plenty of amorals are able to cooperate as equals, and quite lastingly so. There's very effective criminal gangs all through the world. So, you know, I think a relationship of moral equals can be more stable than Socrates envisaged. It could be worse. I mean, having any alignment of interests, having a moralizing foreign policy sometimes means having a less flexible one. And in this case, I can see cases where their moral interests are more important than the bilateral one, and that having an alignment of values would get in the way of of other values in other places. You wrote one of the definitive articles about ISIS called What ISIS Really Believes. Looking back at ISIS, which now seems to be a much diminished force, what was that movement, I want to say, that seems like a strange locution, that terrorist group about? What did it teach us? And is there a lasting relevance to it? Or is it a strange caprice of history which spread terrible violence for a number of years and is then destined to disappear from view? I think the word you used, movement, is actually the right one, because the frightening thing about ISIS when it arose may have been that it was a state, that it controlled territory, that it was big and rich and powerful at the time with millions of people under its rule. But the way that I tended to look at it was as a movement that was not just political, but ideological and religious, and that was global in scope, Uh, not just in ambition, but actually people who were showing up from a lot of different places who were, you know, we could read them as being dissatisfied with modernity or religious throwbacks. This was a coalition of a lot of different people with some of the same views. And so a lot of my work was trying to figure out what those views are and why they were attractive to people from Japan and from Birmingham, England, and from France, and from Saudi Arabia, and from Egypt. So there are a number of, I think, pretty clear political implications of what happened. And one is that the view of Obama, which was that Al-Qaeda at the time, later ISIS, if they're working off in some dusty corner of Syria, then it's okay. That's fine. You know, let them have a good time over there because this part of the world does not matter to the rest. That turned out not to be the case with ISIS. And I think in the future, we will be correctly chastened by our failure to act when they first gathered steam in Raqqa and then spread out and became so much bigger. So that's the main thing. There's also, though, I think... The ISIS example tells us to be maybe a little bit more circumspect about some of our theories of human motivation. When I looked into why people were going to ISIS, why they believed in ISIS, many of the theories that I had seen, people were, they were too poor. A lot of the secular focused views of why people might leave the comforts of home to join a terrorist group, they just did not seem to apply. There used to be for a long time this sort of you know, people who join these terrorist groups are just excluded in their societies and they're poor and they don't really have any other options. And all of the research for the last 30 years seems to just have pointed 
to in the direction that, that, that every element of that just appears to be wrong. Yeah, or at least there's certainly no simple monotonic relationship between how poor you are and whether you're going to join ISIS. So a lot of those theories, they just didn't seem to work with ISIS. And I think more generally, what I learned from looking at that movement was that we underrate how ideologically motivated a lot of people are, that people really believe some things and it matters to find out what beliefs are that they have, how they get them. And we shouldn't think of those beliefs as epiphenomenal with some material explanation that explains them away in every case. How does that change our view? If we aren't willing to take seriously the ideology of these extremist movements and understand that they are driven by ideals, ideals that we might rightly find horrifying, but that do motivate them in a normative kind of way, how does that change our view of ISIS? But more importantly, how does that change our view of the world in general? Yeah, we actually see this all the time in many non-ISIS contexts where we're trying to figure out why people join the Proud Boys. We try to find out why people join Antifa. And we're very selective, I think, about how we apply our understanding of ideology, material motivations, political motivations, where there was for a period, people saying that ideology doesn't really motivate ISIS it's because people have other reasons, even if they say it's ideology, even if they believe it's ideology, it's not that. And then others saying, oh, well, if you're a mass shooter in Buffalo who says that you're an aficionado of great replacement and so forth, these clearly are motivating the Buffalo shooter. So we still have to look at individual circumstances. Sometimes people do say that they're motivated by things that clearly they're not. They don't realize what's really moving them. But I think more generally, it's a fertile area for exploration, what people think and how they get these ideas. People, they are often enslaved by bad ideas that have infected their minds. And knowing where those ideas come from, it's just a necessary component of understanding human motivation. And I think that component is just neglected in a lot of cases, and we should figure out better how to do that. But now the next question is, okay, so people have bad ideas and that makes them do bad things. What do we do about that? And that's a, <laughs> I'm sorry to say, I have very little idea how to work with that because convincing people out of bad ideas is a hard thing to do. Just like in some cases, it's like trying to convince people to like different music, trying to change minds is a problem that you know has no definitive solution right now. So right now, when I think of this, it's for mostly diagnostic reasons. But if you've got interventions that you can think of, then, then I'm all ears. I'm not sure I do, but I do think it's important to emphasize this point, you know, which comes out into a debate after every terrorist attack or in all kinds of different contexts. And the fronts usually depend on whether it's a left-wing attack or a right-wing attack. But some people want to say, oh, this was just somebody who was mentally ill. And others want to say, no, no, this person was driven by an ideology. And it's always struck me that this is a bad dichotomy, um, that in order to go and carry out a terrible terrorist attack or engage in some form of large-scale violence, you need to have a psychological predisposition, which might mean you're mentally ill, or it might mean that you're not mentally ill, but you just have a personality that is open to extreme forms of violence in perhaps a rational way. And then you also have to have the ideological fuel, which tells you some kind of story about who to attack, why, and how that makes you a great person. And, you know, it's only when those two things come together that somebody is likely to act. And so in nearly every case, it seems to me that there is a psychological element and an ideological element. Yeah, that's right. And again, the application of that insight is very selective. So take something like the massacre of Muslims in Christchurch, New Zealand. After that, what's the reaction of the New Zealand government, in, in addition to very sensible things like making it harder to have weapons of war that unstable people can take into mosques? It was to say there was a manifesto that was put out. And the most important thing is that we keep control of that manifesto and not allow people to see it in New Zealand, outside of New Zealand. I have, as an American, a visceral distaste for trying to stop people from reading things. So that's what I take to this. But also, I just noticed that in the case of Christchurch, the reaction is ideology is poison, and it is the virus that gets people to do these things. That may be a very important component of that. I don't doubt it. But um, just notice that ideology is downplayed in many other circumstances. So 
making sure that we understand and value that component across the board and in particular cases, figure out where that component, how it matters in this complex interplay of politics and so forth. So one of the strange little facts about you is that you know Richard Spencer, the American white supremacist, from growing up with him. And you wrote a very powerful story about Spencer. And I understand that you recently spoke to him for the first time in many years. How does, speaking of extremist ideologies, somebody like Spencer come about? Yeah, so it's true. I've known Richard Spencer since we were seventh grade lab partners in middle school. So, and had no idea at the time that he would become the coiner of the phrase alt-right, that he would become a white nationalist leader. And maybe his rise has something to do with my view that simple material conditions are a poor explanation for where people end up because we were in the same school. You know, we were from the same milieu. So the idea that you have one milieu and that ultimately explains where you end up politically. We ended up opposite places politically. And what I found in talking to him and talking to other extremists of the right, as well as extremists of the Islamist right, they call it a vices. When you talk to them, it's really interesting. When they describe why they're doing what they're doing, they have a very complex path that they can point to. And it usually doesn't quite look like what you think. For example, in the case of Spencer, he traced some of his development to an internship at the Bavarian State Opera. Richard Spencer... Uh, what? Yeah. My mom is a conductor in, you know, and I grew up in Germany. So, you know, I think my mom has conducted the Bavarian State Opera. I've often been to the Bavarian State Opera. So this is, uh, to me, a strange twist in this tale. Sorry for my, yeah, the, uh, my exclamation. The Staatsoper in Bavaria was a place where Richard Spencer, after discovering somewhat late in his education that the life of the mind might be for him, he wanted to immerse himself in German culture. And so... He went and, with a great love of Wagner, became interested in the deep history of Germany, political currents from Nietzsche and interpretations of Nietzsche onward. And when I found out that Richard Spencer was rising in the ranks of the extreme right, thought, along with many, was that, look, this is a kid from Texas. There's lots of racists in Texas. It's not surprising that one would rise to the national level the way that he did. And, you know, that's true. There were lots of racists in Texas, in the milieu where we grew up. But no, it turned out that his radicalization really started at the University of Virginia, at the Bavarian State Opera, and at the University of Chicago, where he became enamored with certain political figures whom he was studying, and for whom most people, including all of his professors, these were simply objects of study. This was a political dead end that was theoretically interesting and that he thought actually deserved another hearing and deserved a transformation into political action. And that's what he was in 2016, was someone who's trying to turn certain ideas into political action. And that led to tiki torches that led to the death of Heather Hearing and so forth. So now he's in a kind of repentant mode and is living a relatively quiet life in, in Montana. But the simple view of how people get to the bad ideas that they have turns out to be complicated almost every time when you talk to people like him. And that's a lot of what I do for a living is talking to people like him and seeing what their story really is. So, so I have two questions about your journalism to round off the conversation. The first is simply that you spend a lot of your time talking to bad people. <laughs> you spend a lot of your time talking to people within ISIS, talking to MBS, talking to Richard Spencer. What is that like? How do you balance the fact that you need to get into their trust in certain ways, that certainly an effective interview of a terrorist who is a member of ISIS is not to shout at them down the phone or to shout at them in person telling them what evil people they are, and at the same time, of course, your writing in journalism has a very clear moral stance. It is evident that you do not like these people and do not support their political endeavor. How is it possible to take seriously the ideology of people we disagree with, to be respectful to them while reporting in the ways that are necessary to actually elicit the interesting information, and yet not lose your own moral footing or not lose the clear moral message of what you write about? 
Yeah, none of these people, by the way, would enjoy being in, in the company of the others, I'm sure. But that is Richard Spencer, ISIS supporters and MBS. But yeah, it's true. I spend a lot of time talking to people who I don't like. And I feel a natural distinction between not liking people, not liking their ideas, and not liking talking to them. In fact, it's far more fun, far more interesting, far more revealing to be talking to someone, present company excluded, of course, from this comparison. You think that both yeah. evil and not fun to talk to? No. <laughs> yeah. People who, who share your, your views, I, I kind of know what they think. And then you talk to someone like Richard Spencer, who wants to create a white ethno state and sees himself as the Theodor Herzl of that future state. That's way beyond anything that I contemplate on a normal basis. Same thing with ISIS supporters. These are people from all sorts of strange backgrounds who share a very particular view of the future and of the nature of good and evil and of the cosmos. And hearing them talk about it is truly fascinating. MBS, there is only one MBS. There's only one person on the planet who has the kind of power that he has. And so to discover what his psychology is, is truly fascinating and necessary. It's valuable for everyone, his supporters and his opponents, to know who this guy is. So that is what I love doing. I think it's a necessary journalistic task. It's also strangely one that a lot of journalists don't like doing. That is talking to people who are evil, people who you disagree with, and then really finding out what they think and why they think it, and then describing it in a fair, honest way. The way at the time when I'm talking to them that I do that is by being honest. I mean, I, I never conceal what my real views are about things any more than just the bounds of politeness require. But I don't think any ISIS supporters think that I support ISIS. Richard Spencer certainly didn't believe that I supported a white ethno state. And MBS, he knew that I'm an American journalist with no record of supporting any kind of authoritarian anywhere. So if he didn't know that I was going to be critical of his more authoritarian moves, then that's really on him. My, my questions themselves revealed it. So that, I think, is the main important thing, is that for most people, no matter how much you oppose their views, no matter how exotic that you think they, they are, if you're honest about your curiosity about them, honest about where you're coming from, then they're actually pretty eager to tell you about them. When I talked to some of the first ISIS supporters I met, they said to me well, a number of interesting comments, but a common one was, you're the first person who's actually just asked us about what we believe. There's a lot of people who ask us questions like, when's the next bomb going to go off in Melbourne? And of course, they're not going to answer that question. But if you ask what matters to you most in the world, what do you think is going to happen in the next 20 years? These are questions that everybody is, I think, flattered to be asked. It's something that just very few people actually goes to them and asks. So having that openness, that honesty, or aspiring to these things anyway, I think is just my modus operandi. It's what I do. When we were chatting as we were setting up for podcasts, you said something that struck me because it makes sense to me, but I hadn't quite thought of it, which is that, you know, what you do is a kind of general interest reporting and journalism, and that that's actually becoming much rarer and that some of the students you teach are sort of puzzled even by the concept of that or by what that kind of figure is, who somebody like James Fellows is. What is general interest reporting? How do you describe your ambition or your role and, you know, why are you convinced that that's becoming less common? And should we worry about that? Yeah, I've written on a very wide range of subjects, even within political subjects. I've, I've written from every continent, but Antarctica for the Atlantic. So I, I move from place to place. I move from subject to subject. And then outside of politics, you know, I've written about professional wrestling. I've written about hurricanes. Uh, I've written about you know, my favorite Bavarian cuisine. So there's just a number of subjects that have interested me and that I've dived into pretty deeply. That's what a general interest reporter does. And it used to be a very common thing. It used to be understood that you'd you know, open the New Yorker or the Atlantic, and you might have a piece by my colleague, James Fallows, who's one of the masters of this genre. And maybe it would be about Texas politics. Maybe it would be about the history of a certain type of rifle. Maybe it would be about the physiological differences that cause men and women to throw baseballs in different ways. And I have found that younger journalists, students I've spoken to, have been baffled by the existence of reporters who work this way, which surprised me because reading these magazines when I was young, 
it seemed like that's how all the best writers who I liked worked, moving from subject to subject. And I think it may have something to do with the belief that journalists, that people in general, should stay into a very narrow lane that is often constricted by their identity. So it's very easy to find people who will say, don't write about Saudi Arabia. That's something that Muslims should do. That's something that Saudis should do or Arabs should do. That is exactly the opposite of my instinct, but it seems to be the way that a lot of people, I think, naively think journalism should be, is that you should be ideally of the people or place or thing that you're writing about. And if you're not of it, then be uniquely focused on that. So all that you're thinking about is the kinesiology of baseball throwing. All that you're thinking about is Saudi Arabia. And that's a great loss. And the reason it's a great loss is because there have been journalists, and I you know, aspire to be a, one of them, who have, in a way, specialized in being generalists. They have specialized in going into complex situations and complex issues, and then understanding them quickly and applying the tools of a generalist to understanding those situations and then explaining them to a wider public coming to conclusions that are invisible to the experts because they're experts, because they lack some of the wisdom that come from other situations that can be cross-applied. And over the years, there have been so many journalists who have been masters of this. I've mentioned Fallows, but The New Yorker used to have a great bullpen of, of people who would do this from subject to subject, and they still have many people who do that very well, The Atlantic as well. But these people are becoming more endangered, and I like to think that I'm in my work sort of keeping that craft up because it's just a very important part of the journalistic public discourse ecosystem to have some people who do this move from story to story and become quick studies on this and that, and then come to conclusions that are integrative that would be very difficult for someone who's constricted by identity or by the sole focus on a subject to come to. Graham Wood, thank you so much for your work and thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Yasha, thanks so much. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Oh,